All right. It's good to see you all after a couple of weeks. We had a wonderful time in Norwalk, Ohio. Some of you were able to view that. And uh, we're looking forward to some other trips over there. In the meantime, I've had a couple of other places that want me to come. There's a place east of Columbus, Ohio that want me to come that are quite a few ex-Amish and ex-Mennonite people. So we're looking forward to that. And then in June, we're going to Springfield, Illinois to minister at... uh, can't think of the guy's name. Last name is Bench. Robin and, okay, whatever his name is, Bench. Uh, we're going to go there and minister, so we're looking forward to that. Doors are opening to go out and, and share the word. It's getting out more and more. And so tonight, I'm going to be very short and brief. I kind of wore my throat out the last weekend, and I'm still... Uh, kind of little horse here, but uh, what I want to do tonight, and we welcome those on Facebook Live and those that are here, uh, we are going to continue on mind-brain connections. This is number 118, and I'm only going to minister half of this message tonight, and then Lord willing, next week I'll finish finish it up since we're going to have food and fellowship tonight after the service, but what I want to talk about is creating a vacuum in prayer. Creating a vacuum in prayer. Now, let me just say right off the bat, you and I are the prayer. Prayer is our nature. Therefore, we must involve ourselves in prayer since it's our nature. And it's nothing that is laborious. It's nothing that is hard because it is our nature. We are prayer. But because we are prayer, there are things that we must do, not in the energy of the flesh, but in the power of the Spirit, that we must do to exercise who we are as prayer. And so what I want to talk about, as I've already stated, is specifically collapsing time in prayer. We've talked about living in the end. We found out that to live in the end where in Isaiah 46.10, it says there that God declared the end from the beginning. So living in the end simply means that I realize that I am. He is my health. He is my wealth. He is all. Every apparent need that I have and that you have tonight, he is that as you. That's living in the end. And then collapsing time is to realize that he is that and I am that right now. Not tomorrow, not after we physically die, not after some rapture of the church. Right now, I'm health. Regardless of what it appears like in the outward realm, regardless of what it appears like, I am right now wealth and health in all things that I might have an apparent need of. Now, I want to begin by saying this. The word ask tricks up a lot of people. You know, when we were children, we'd ask our parents, Mother, may I? Or Father, will you give me the the car tonight, the keys to the car? Can I do this? Can I have some money? We ask and we receive from our parents. But what I want us to understand is that in the outer court mentality, if I can say it that way, in the holy place mentality, we think of the definition of ask as being to ask for something that you think you don't have. To ask for something that you think you don't have or that you need, rather than realizing it's already been provided for us in seed form. When we exercise out of the most holy place mentality, ask, the word ask, then changes its definition. And it's realizing I already have. 
And it's simply thanking the Father. And thanking the Father and realizing that we already have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness, that He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. Once we realize that, we come to understand that that is also a form of asking. Just realizing and resting is a form of asking. But not asking in the way that we would ask when we were children, when we asked our parents for things. Not in the way that we, when we had a holy place or out-of-court mentality. Not in that way of asking. And you know, the majority of people in the body of Christ today, and even in the world, are consistently asking God for stuff. And he cannot give us anything that he's already given us. Now, what he does do, because he can't do what he's already done, but what he does do consistently within us is he maintains, sustains, and upholds the kingdom of God within us. And when we participate, when we're participatory with that, knowing that we have all things already, knowing that the death of Jesus exposed the lies that we believed and embraced one day, knowing that his resurrection revealed who we have always been and revealed that we have all things, knowing that is a form of asking. Now, Jesus said it this way, and I'm not going to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said that the Gentiles... And if you look up the word Gentiles, it's the unlearned. The unlearned ask for food, for clothes, and for drink. The unlearned, the Gentiles, ask for food, clothes, and drink. In fact, Jesus then continued on, and he simply said that we are to take no thought for food, for clothes, and for drink. Why? Because he simply knew that we were given all things. All things were already given to us in seed form from before the foundation. We came here with all things. We just believed the lie. Now, we didn't come here in Adam, as we know, with lack. We came here perfect, holy, complete. But once we heard religion preached to us or taught to us, and we embraced that, that is when, as I say, we got amnesia and we forgot who we were forgot who we always were. Now, I'm going to have you to turn to James chapter 4 and verse 3. And I want to read this scripture, very familiar verse of scripture, in James chapter 4 and verse 3. And then we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 40. And I want us to explore God's omniscience a little bit tonight. God's omniscience. What does his omniscience mean? He knows all things. Now, does he really know all things? And I'm not going to get into that tonight. I say, no, he doesn't know all things. But yes, he does know all things. And I'll unravel that. You know, you've heard me teach on that before. When I gave the example of, your, you know, if you're up in an airplane and the air, airplane's about to crash, God doesn't know that, but you know that. And so you can bring about the safety and the protection that everyone that's on that airplane can experience. How could God not know that? We'd be in big trouble if God knew the negative things. Let me say that again. You didn't hear it. We'd be in big trouble if God knew negative things. What did he say in Jeremiah? I know the plans that I have for you. They're for good and not for evil. So God doesn't know evil things and bad things about us. He knows the good things about us. So on one level, he's not omniscient and all-knowing. But on another level, he is. And we'll talk about that. Now, James 4 and verse 3 says, You ask and receive not. Why? Because you ask amiss to consume it upon your own lust. In other words, you're merely asking for things for the sake of things or money for the sake of money. 
or whatever it is for the sake, houses, lands, boats, and a mansion on the hilltop, whatever. You're asking amiss, and when you ask amiss, you're asking just to, or for the forsake, or for the sake of just having more stuff, accumulating more materiality, more material things. Now, if you quickly go to Isaiah chapter 40, and again, let me say as you're turning there, most people today ask God to give to them things rather than turning within to him who is invisible supply in us and as us. You know, I think some people think it's easier just to ask God. That takes everything off of them. Rather than to turn within, rather than to meditate, rather than to engage the divine imagination, to determine, I'm going to see this through my divine imagination. And I'm going to engage the divine imagination, and I'm going to form a resolution for whatever it is that's going on in my life that I don't like. And that God doesn't particularly like. Now, let's look at his omniscience. Here in Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 14, it says, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counsel, counselor, hath taught him? With who took he counsel? Did he ever ask any of us? He didn't need our counsel. With who took he counsel and who instructed him? Did he ask us to instruct him in the path of judgment or discernment? And who taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding? So in other words, what this is saying is there is nothing that we have to tell the Father concerning our apparent need. There's nothing we have to tell the Father. There's nothing that we have to instruct him, Lord, I need this. Lord, I need that. There's nothing that we have that we have to ask him for counsel or ask him to bring to us since we already have all things. We turn within to invisible supply and we meditate upon the fact that he is my health, he is my wealth, he is my all as me. Now, there's a scripture that a lot of people, I believe, and myself, didn't understand. In Isaiah 65, 24, if you want to turn there in Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 24, I want to read this to you here. Isaiah 65 and verse 24. Because, you know, we've quoted this and we've read this and, you know, we haven't really seen it in light of the fact that we already came here with all things. All spiritual blessings, all natural blessings, everything that pertains to life and godliness, we came here with it. So look what it says there in Isaiah 65, 24. It says, and it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. What in the big round world is that talking about? This is what it's talking about. Before we ever called and asked for anything, he put us in a finished work. Before we ever called, before we ever uttered a word asking God to do something for us, he put us like he did Adam. He put Adam in a finished work. Everything Adam needed was there. And he put us in a finished work. When? From before the universe was formed, from before the foundation of the world. And we simply call on him and ask, if you want to call it ask, by turning within by engaging divine imagination, by living in the end and seeing I am. 
All that I think I need, I am that. And collapsing time, I am that right now. No matter how it appears, no matter how I feel, no matter how it looks, no matter what a, the appearance realm would dictate to me, I turn within. And as I turn within, we could say that's a form of asking. Now, let me say it this way. If we really understood omniscience, we would realize that he is all-knowing. But be careful how you hear that. Again, and I've already explained that. How is he all-knowing? He's certainly not all-knowing. Do you think that God knows if you're going to get out on the street and have an automobile accident? Absolutely not. I know some of you are looking at me kind of squirrely. He does not know that because he doesn't know anything about you except the good things. I know the plans that I have for you. The only thing I know is the good that's going to happen to you. He has limited himself in that aspect of knowing anything evil that would befall us. He only knows the good. As I said, we'd be in big trouble, a heap of trouble. Because I'll guarantee you, if he knew that we were going to have an accident on the way home, we would have it. Because he'd be thinking about that. If he was thinking about that, and if he knew that. But he doesn't know that. I know that's hard to get. I know that's hard to receive because, oh, well, God's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows all things. He's limited himself to knowing some things. What about omnipresence? Some people have the idea that, well, you know, God is omnipresent. Is he? Is he omnipresent? If he was omnipresent, everyone would have plenty of money. Everyone would be walking in health. But now listen to this. There's another aspect to that. Even though he is omnipresent or everywhere present, unless we walk in the awareness of that, see, as we walk in the awareness of that, then we'll begin to experience that omnipresence. And let me say this. He is also omniscient as you because you know all things. He is omnipresent as you because he's in every man. And every man is everywhere present. See, So what is it? It's walking in the proper awareness of omniscience, the all-knowingness of God, and it's walking in the proper awareness of the omnipresence of God. And as we walk in the awareness of, of his omniscience, we're going to be thinking right about what he knows, not wrong about what he knows. Or let me say it this way. We're going to be thinking spiritually about what he knows. And we're going to be thinking spiritually and be spiritually aware of his omnipresence in the sense that he's everywhere present. If we were aware of his omnipresence, we could go into the lion's den exactly like Daniel did. So listen, we have people, for example, that come with all kind of apparent circumstances, apparent needs, apparent situations, and as they bring those problems to us, do you know that because there is just one spirit, you can be raised up and you can see them living in the end and you can see them living in the end right now so you can, as them, since there's only one spirit, you can see them living in the end, you can collapse time, and you can also create a vacuum because you can look at what they are experiencing in the negative realm and you can cut that off by yielding it unto the Christ mind, seeing them in the end, 
and collapsing time where they are concerned. I truly believe that because there is only one spirit. So you and I can walk in the omniscience, the all-knowingness of God, when we see it correctly. We can walk in the omnipresence when we see that correctly. And we can also walk in the omnipotence. He is all power. And we can exercise that power as spirit leads us. Because omnipotence means one power, only one power. And you see, as I've said many times, we don't use the power. Jesus never used the power. You know, just like the gifts. It says, don't use the gifts as an occasion to the flesh. We don't use the power of God as an occasion to the flesh. But we allow the power. Like Jesus, he didn't do anything but what he saw Father do. Didn't say anything but what he heard Father say. What did he do? He didn't use the power. He allowed the power to flow through him and to use him. And he knew and he saw the omniscience. He saw the omnipresence. And he realized the omnipotence, the one power of the Father. Now, let's go to 1 Corinthians 14. And let me talk a little bit more about prayer tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 14 and 15. Now, I am in no way, let me say it this way. Let me explain my own testimony about this. I used to speak in tongues a lot by will. I no longer do that, but I'm not saying I don't speak in tongues. I speak in tongues as spirit unctions that within me. But I still do speak in tongues, but not at will like I used to. So I want to show you something about prayer here in 1 Corinthians 14, 14 and 15. says, for if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful, verse 15, What is it then? I'm going to pray with the Spirit, and I'm going to pray with the understanding. I'm going to do it both ways. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. In other words, what I hear in this is I can pray with the Spirit, and I can pray in the Spirit. Now, let me show you the difference. When I pray with the Spirit, it may be in an unknown prayer language, as Spirit yields or wills. But I can also pray not only with the Spirit, but in the spirit, just within myself, without uttering one word. You know, the scripture talks about if you say to the mountain, be thou removed, and don't doubt in your heart, it will be cast into the sea. And the word saith there in Vine's expository of New Testament words, one of the meanings is just to think. We have been worded to death almost as far as speaking the word, you know. And I'm not against the faith realm. I learned a lot in the faith realm, went through a lot of that. But it's, you always had to speak it, and if you didn't speak it, it wasn't going to happen. And if you did speak something negative, that was going to happen. And it was just a constant barrage of word, 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 word. You've got to speak the word, you've got to speak the word. Now, I believe in speaking the word. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I believe in speaking the word. <clears throat> I believe in speaking words of spirit and life. I certainly do. I believe in praying in tongues. I certainly do. And I do that not by will like I used to, but I do that as spirit begins to rise up within me in that way. But what this is talking about where it talks about praying with the spirit, other places it says praying in the spirit, what it is talking about when it's talking about praying in the spirit, I believe, is waiting to hear the still small voice on the inside of us if it encourages us. To speak words of spirit and life, we do that, but don't worry if it doesn't encourage you to speak words. 
just, just allow the consciousness. See, when God said, let there be light, or light be and light was, I don't necessarily believe it had came by words. I believe it was consciousness. It's not by mental might, nor by physical power, but it is by my spirit, meaning consciousness, saith the Lord. Spirit and consciousness are synonymous words. They can be used either way, spirit or consciousness. So once we understand that, then we're not bound to a certain way that we think we have to do it this way. That's very religious. Religious sounding and very religious. Now, in creating a vacuum, here's the vacuum that we create. When we yield the idea that I'm sick, I yield that. I abstain from an appearance of evil or negativity. When I yield that, then what am I doing? I am creating a vacuum. And we must create a vacuum in the area of thinking that God is going to do anything for us. Because there are things that God cannot do for us because he's already done all things. Again, what he does do is he upholds, sustains, and maintains the kingdom of God within us. And as we participate with that, then yes, it's spirit, and yes, it's God the Father, but it's us as well, you see. Because we are one, there's no separation. Now, what is the meaning of a vacuum? It's to yield that appearance realm. It's when we yield that thing that we see in the appearance realm. And this is the meaning. It is a state of being, or you could say a state of consciousness, or a heart coherence, and you're going to hear those words more in the future, a heart coherence where we are sealed off from external and environmental influences. And it's the same thing as dwelling in the secret place of the Most High. Now, when you dwell in the secret place of the Most High, as Psalm 91 says, nothing can touch you. That's not talking about nothing can touch you as far as temptation, but nothing touches you on the inward part. Nothing, you, you maintain your coherence, your heart coherence. You maintain your consciousness, and nothing can touch that. Once we're stabilized in this, nothing can touch. I don't care if it's hell or high water that tries to come against us. I don't care if it's a physical problem, financial problem, social problem, mental problem. I don't care what it is. When you abide in the secret place, when you are dwelling, abiding in, like the, the, the branch and the vine, when you are dwelling in the secret place of the Most High, it says there in Psalm 191, nothing will come nigh thy dwelling. That's talking about your inward dwelling. But you stay in that place and you experience perfect peace. You experience rest knowing that I am living in the end, knowing that I am right now collapsing time, time and yielding anything that would try to dictate something else to you. That's creating the vacuum. Now, let's look at a few verses of Scripture. Let's go to Colossians 3 and verse 2. Colossians 3 and verse 2. Now, look what it says here. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2. And again, this is a very familiar verse of Scripture that we all could probably quote by heart. Colossians chapter, what did I say, 3 And verse 2, set your affection on, now, we could use the word heart. Set your heart. How many know out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks? How many know as a man thinks in his heart, that's the governor of your life? 
See, we've been big on teaching spirit leadership, and I'm not saying that's not there. It certainly is. As we bring the Christ thoughts and realize, you know, that we are, we have and we are the mind of Christ. But we're going to hear a little bit more about the leadership is really the feminine part. It's really the feminine part. As you think in your heart, as a man thinks in his heart, or a woman thinks in his heart, that's the feminine side. So is he. That governs his life or her life. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So here it says, let me read it again. Set your affection or your heart on things above, not on things on the earth or of the earth. Now, let me say it this way. What does it mean to set your, in what we're talking about in prayer, what does it mean to set your affection on things of the earth? The appearance realm. Asking. Thinking God can do something for you that he can't do because he's already done it. That's setting our affection on things of the earth rather than on the heart. Now, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18. Let's look at this one as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I love this because this really spells it out in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Well, let's go up to verse 17. Verse 17. For our light affliction... How many would like for your light affliction to just last a minute? (laughs) Just a minute. Well, it can. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Now, where is the affliction, though? The affliction is not just in the body. It's when we lower the consciousness. And on the end, you know, Jesus said it this way. It's not that which is without that defiles the man. It's not something outside of him. Not even in his body, not some demon or devil or some preacher that's preaching false teaching. No, it's that which is within, he said, that defiles the man. That's what defiles us. Our heart coherence. How we think. How we talk. For a lot of afflictions, but for a moment. And it works for us a far more exceeding great and eternal weight of glory. While, here's the key. Notice that's not a period at the end of verse 17. While we look not at the things which are seen in the appearance realm, and focus on that, because where focus goes, energy flows. But while we look at the things which are not seen, or the invisible, for the things which are seen are temporal. They're here today and gone tomorrow. But the things which are, notice, not seen, they are fruit that remains. See, they are eternal. So what do we focus on? We focus upon not the appearance realm. We abstain from that. That's creating the vacuum. We focus upon I am, seeing the end. We focus upon I am right now, collapsing time. I had someone uh, read one of my posts or listen to the video, I'm not sure, this week. And they wrote in the comments section, don't even remember who it was, but they wrote in the comments section, think about the children of Israel. They could have collapsed time. Instead of going 40 years around the mountain, why didn't they collapse time? They could have got there even in the natural in 11 days. Now, why did they not collapse time? Because of what was right here. Their focus. They were complaining. They were bickering. They were this. They were that. They were in a mess. They could have collapsed time and made it in less than 11 days. Now, what verse 16 is conveying here, verse 16, what verse 16, let me read that again, for which cause we faint not, in other words, he's telling us how not to waver, 
But though our, oh, I didn't read that, did I? But though our outward man perish. Now listen, that has nothing to do with dying and being buried in a grave. Your outward man perishing. But it's letting go of the things of the earth. Like we read in Colossians 3, 2. It's letting go of the things of the outward man. It's letting go of the things that might be attacking you physically or financially or mentally or socially. It's letting go of those things in the appearance realm. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man, that's your consciousness, it's your awareness, is renewed day by day. So what verse 16 is conveying here is that as we raise our level of consciousness, we have this heart coherence, we realize we are the mind of Christ, we allow those things to diminish, or we yield or we give up the way things look, we are creating the vacuum. And that's all that it's saying there. That's all that it's saying there. Now listen to Philippians 3 and verse 20. For our light, or for our conversation, excuse me, for our conversation or our life, our life, our conversation is in heaven, the spirit realm. So if our consciousness is in the spirit realm, focused upon the spirit realm, then our life is going to exemplify that. Okay? For our conversation or life is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, our life is to be lived out of heaven, not out of earth. Our life is to be lived from within, not out of what is appearing. And it's very interesting how that we've been so overtaught, as I've already spoken, where it comes to speaking words. But there are many scriptures that talk about not even speaking words, like the one I gave you. If you say to the mountain, be thou removed, and not doubt in your heart, it shall do what you say. The word say and saith is in that verse two times. And according to Vine's expository of New Testament words, again, one of the meanings is just to be conscious of and just to think. And of course, again, we know God said, let there be light, or light be, and light was. And again, that word said in the Hebrew, it means to talk, it means to tell, it means to declare, and it also means to think or to be conscious of. The word said, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Because listen, your life speaks. My life speaks. Our lives speak. Let me give you a couple examples. Did Peter say when he was, whatever he was doing, and people were just healed by his shadow, did he speak words to the people that were healed? Absolutely not. At least it doesn't say that he did. The woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment, did Jesus, he didn't even know she was being healed until he felt the virtue going out from him. He didn't say a word to her. So there's two examples right there that we don't always have to speak words. Now, again, I believe in speaking words of spirit and life. But don't be upset if you don't feel on certain occasions to speak any words. Don't be upset by that. Because then, you see, if, if you get upset by that, then you're getting off into works. Getting off into works. I got to speak, I got to speak, I got to speak words of spirit and life. Then you're getting off into works. Now, let me give you seven things about faith that are very important. Or I could say knowing, because I believe... When we exercise faith, we move on into knowing. We have the faith of the Son of God. It's not even our faith. 
In Jesus' day, he would say, your faith has made you whole and so forth. But it's the faith of the Son of God that we have. Now, when we exercise that faith, we move then into knowing. So let me give you seven things, first of all, that faith is not. And then we can readily see what faith truly is. And we can identify faith, therefore we can identify knowing. Number one, faith is not a power within us that you have to build up. It is not a power within you that you have to build up so that you can make things happen, even to the point of forcing God's hand, so to speak. It's not getting a greater power to overcome a lesser power. We've taught that around here a lot. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, now faith is. Now, let me show you what makes it now. It's not the word now. Because when he went into Hebrews chapter 11 and he started that first verse with now, he was talking about the things in the previous chapter. Now, or therefore, or now. But the thing that makes faith now is the word is. Faith is. Present. That's what makes faith now. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. And what is it? It's living out of the isness. Faith is. So it's living out of the isness of God. What is the isness of God? It's living in the end. It's collapsing time. Because I is health, wealth, any apparent need I have. I is that and I is that right now. That's true faith. That moves you into the, once you realize it, then you know that you know that you know. It's greater even than faith. It's a knowing and no one can talk you out of it. Number two, faith is not a work. It's not a struggle to arrive at a state of mind where some hoped-for blessing can be seen and felt as being possessed or manifested. In other words, it does not focus on a desired object. Just like Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and that's within, and his righteousness, and all of these things will be, and I know it says added, but it's really the word magnetized. You'll draw those things like a magnet when you turn within where invisible supply is. So, number two, faith is not a work. It's not a struggle for us to arrive at some state of mind where some hoped-for blessing is then manifested within our life. You know what that is? That is merely positive thinking. It is mind over matter. Let me go further. It is simply the law of attraction. It's the law of attraction. See, in law of attraction, they're trying to get something, not realizing they already have it all in seed form. It's really a radiation. Law of attraction is really a radiation from the inside out, that which you already have. Number three, faith and knowing is not merely in the words of a so-called promise that you pull out of the Bible. It's not repetitiously confessing the word. Now, we were taught that in the faith realm. If you're sick... By his stripes I'm healed, by his stripes I'm healed, all day long, by his stripes I'm healed, by his... My husband got tired of that. <laughs> when are you going to get out of that stupid bed? Because I was taught, you've got to confess the word. You've got to take the Bible, and you've got to say, by his stripes I'm healed, by his stripes I'm healed. Well, it really doesn't even say that. It says, by his stripes we were healed. It's revealing something that already happened from before the foundation of the world. Number four... Faith is not... See, because we've used these words as magical formulas. And then we have to attach, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Well, listen, we're already in the name or the nature or the character. 
And another meaning of name is way. Do it Jesus' way, the way he did it. That's the way we do it. So they use in the name of Jesus as a magical formula. They use words that they get out of the Bible as a magical formula. That's all it is. Hello. Number four, faith is not directed at the words of a promise, but it rests in the one who made the promise. It rests in the one who made the promise. And Father made the promise even way thousands of years before Jesus even went to the cross. He went to the cross to reveal that which has always been the promise. Faith and knowing is realization of a completed work, not even looking for manifestation, but looking for realization. Looking for realization that he is all things as me. And as he is in this world, so are we. As he is. Is he sick? Is he broke? Is he depressed? Is he obsessed? No. So that verse there in, I don't know, 1 John, one of the little John books, is saying that however he is, that's true of us. As he is, so are we. In other words, he is the health of my body, the wealth of my being, the allness. He is all of it. I lack absolutely nothing. Number five, biblical faith, if you want to call it that, biblical faith is not found within us as a natural energy or as a labor, but true faith is beholding and responding to his faithfulness. Because listen, when we ain't faithful, he's faithful. When we're unfaithful, he's faithful, the scripture says. Romans 16, 26 says that obedience of faith, it talks about obedience of faith is resting in his faithfulness. Now, we thought in years past when we're involved in legalism and works that being faithful, obedient to the faith, or faith obedience is what I do as far as the outward realm is concerned. I don't cuss, and I don't chew, and I don't go with people to do, and, and I don't, you know, all of that stuff. We thought it was an outside external work as rules and regulations in legalism. It's not that at all. Obedience of faith is simply resting in his faithfulness. Amen. His faithfulness. Number seven, six, I'm sorry. Number six, faith is not a mental marathon with the goal of bringing to pass our agenda by using a formula fashioned out of the words of Scripture, but it's by waiting to hear the still, small voice. And then if you hear him say, speak words of spirit and life, you then speak words of spirit and life. Now, here's the order in that. In Genesis 15, in verse 6, it says that Abraham believed God. He believed the Lord. And in Hebrews 11:11, 11, it says, Sarah judged him faithful who had promised But notice, first of all, Abraham believed him. And then Sarah, in Hebrews 11.11, judged him faithful. So what's the order? Him, him, and then his faithfulness. Him, and then words. Him, and then the truth. Number seven, faith and knowing is not thinking that the Christian life is a shared effort between God and us. It's not asking God to help us live the Christian life. 
How many times have we seen license plates that have said, God is my co-pilot. He wants to be the pilot. There's only one life. Christ is both head and body. We're not trying, you know, people say, well, he was our example. Well, yes, on one level, but not, I don't believe that totally because he doesn't want us to copy after him and do what he did. Christ wants to live its life through us as us. There's a difference there rather than trying to copy the way Jesus lived. See, we must allow that Christ life. The Christian life is not living for God, listen, but it's living by him. We're co-laborers with him. We don't ask God to help us live the Christian life. Hello, we don't ask God to help us live the Christian life like God is my co-pilot. No, he is the pilot. There's only one life. His desire is to live his life, the one life, in and through and as us. It's his life being lived in and through and as us. So in order to create a vacuum in prayer and to seal off all of the external environmental influences, we rest in his faithfulness. We rest in what is already done, what's already done, not dumb, done. And we don't ask him for a single solitary thing in some traditional sense, but we bring that mind of Christ that we are, we allow the heart coherence to connect with that, and as we do, out of the feminine principle is going to be projected that which we desire. And listen, every one of our desires is his desire. You could not have any desire that's apart from his desire, unless, of course, it's for evil to happen to someone and that sort of a thing. But as far as for the good things, the God things, every desire that we have for ourselves that is good is God. I know that's a hard pill to swallow, but it is. Any desire that you have in your life that will bring about any expression of spirit in your life is the desire that the Father has birthed within you. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm not going to go there and read, but it talks there about this corruptible putting on in corruption. And we've talked many times about the healings that Jesus did were corruptible healings. What do I mean they were corruptible healings? It wasn't that the healings... There was something wrong with the healings. They were straight from, he never did anything but what he saw the Father do. So they were straight from the Father. But because of where the people were, they didn't last. And the word corruptible, listen to this, the word corruptible is not a bad word. It just means it's not lasting. That's it. It's for a short period of time. So we're taking off any thoughts of incorruption where we would focus on something out here in the external realm, and we're creating a vacuum. And as we do that, then we realize that is the corruptible or incorruptible, excuse me, incorruptible mind. Same way with immortality. We're not trying to put on immortality. We're waking up to the fact that we may appear mortal, but we've been immortal all along, and we're just simply awakening to that. We exist as immortal. But we haven't, we haven't embraced that because no one hardly has taught that to us. They've taught us we're, everything we ain't, <laughs> everything we're not. Right. One last scripture, and I'm just going to read this. It's 2 Corinthians 13, 5. As I said, I'm going to be kind of short tonight. And uh, we'll finish this up, Lord willing, next week. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 tells us to examine ourselves 
to see if we be in the faith. Now, what that has meant to people is I need to examine myself and make sure there's no sins in my life. No sin or sins in my life. We have taken that verse in a sin-conscious realm, and that is not what it's talking about whatsoever. It says to examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith. What does it mean to be in the faith? Live in the end. Collapse time. Create a vacuum. Living in the end by realizing I am. Health, wealth, and all. Collapsing time, I am that right now. That's living by faith and knowing. And then yielding anything that appears to be the opposite of that. Whether it's sickness, lack, whatever, whatever. That's collapsing time. We yield that to what? To our Christ mind that we are. And then we develop a heart coherence, and then out of the feminine principle, as a man thinks in his feminine side, in his heart, the virgin consciousness, so is he. That will govern his life. It's so simple. What has happened is we have missed it because of all the religiosity that has been taught to us. But thank God truth is coming. People are awakening on the left hand and the right hand, from the north, the south, the west, and the east. They're waking up, and thank God, people are waking up, and they're beginning to, they're not being hoodwinked and bamboozled any longer, but they're beginning to see the reality of the truth. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, our spirit that you placed within us that is leading and guiding and directing and quickening this word that we might experience it, subjectively walk in it, and that we might be that full and complete expression of you in expression. We thank you for the truth, how you're revealing it unto us. In the name of the Lord, amen Amen, amen, amen. and amen.